0: You're listening to The Inverse Podcast, where we explore how the scriptures can turn our world upside down, or how it can be weaponized to uphold the status quo. I'm Drew Hart. And I'm Jared McKenna, and this is Inverse.
1: All right, friends, we've got uh, a really cool episode today. Um, I've invited... Someone that I've gotten to know uh, over the last few years uh, to join us and this person is Michael Barham. Uh, He has earned his PhD in New Testament at Union Theological Seminary Richmond. Um, And since then, he's been a professor in the Department of Theology and Religious Studies at St. Mary's College at California. He's a member of and regularly teaches at First Presbyterian Church of Berkeley. And as a biblical scholar, Barham's work focuses on the formative function of biblical text for moral and economic reasoning and on the emerging subfields of biblical interpretation known as missional hermeneutics. He's the author of Mission and Moral Reflection in Paul, Missional Economics, subtitled Biblical Justice and Christian Formation. And then uh, he's the co-editor along with me, a friend, Gimbia Kettering, and also Michael Rhodes, of the recently released anthology entitled Reparations and the Theological Disciplines, Prophetic Voices for Remembrance, Reckoning, and Repair. And this thing is hot off the press with Lexington Press. Um, And then he's also got one other book that's on the way. And I did, I can um, say that I got to get a cheat read early on of this text (laughs) that's coming. It's called Liberating Scripture, An Invitation to Missional Hermeneutics. And you can anticipate that coming out in 2024. Um, and uh, yours truly will actually be uh, uh, the forward I wrote for that book as well. So I'm excited hey. about mm-hmm. um, that book that um, people are really going to find really useful. I'll lastly say about Michael. He is married to Kelly and they have two adult children, two daughters, age 24 and 21. Um, Michael, Welcome to Inverse Podcasts. Um glad that you could uh, join us in conversation today.
2: Thank you Drew very much. I appreciate it. Nice to nice to see you uh digitally and Jared great to great <laughs> to make your acquaintance. Yeah. Glad to Yeah,
0: it, glad to be connecting, mate. Hey, um before you tell us what passage, we want to give you an opportunity to talk about um either of those projects that um Drew has just uh, mentioned, or anything else that you're working on at the moment. Um, so the the floor is yours.
2: Well, I appreciate it. Uh, thank you, guys. It's great to great to be with you. Yeah. So let me let me say just a little bit about the uh, the book that uh, Drew and I were were working on. Um, that's that's something that uh, you know was what probably a two and a half year. Uh, yeah. little project and Odyssey together, and and certainly was a was a ton of fun working with Drew and as you said, Gambia Kettering and Michael Rhodes. Basically, what happened was that um, a few of us in a in a session that I uh, co chair with a guy named John Frankie that I know you all have had on uh, before uh, on this question of of how do we interpret biblical texts if we're talking about uh, what god is doing in the world in a in a purposive way in a in a um a post missionary sort of the the old uh traditional style of understanding mission as being you know converting people and colonizing and so forth what what happens if we think about uh, the movement and the purposes of God, um, and, and try to read texts as if that's what is going on, um, in terms of our own, uh, formation and so forth. Um, so that we did a session, of, gosh, it was back during COVID when we couldn't actually, uh, be, be together uh, we did a session on reparations that had come up as something that we, we all found interesting. And so a couple of us, Michael Rhodes and I both gave papers in that session and almost immediately within a day or two, we got, uh, invitations from, uh, Lexington as a publisher and one or two others. And, and, uh, you know, just saying, hey, would you like to turn these papers into a book? And that we ha- they had come to us individually, and and neither of us thought much about that. We were just trying, I think, to work out our own sort of thinking. And before long, we thought, you know, maybe that is something we should do. So the two of us talked, and then we reached out to Drew, and Drew knew Gimbia, and it became this kind of kind of project, pretty organically. Really, uh, we ended up with sixteen contributors, and in, in addition to the the four of us. Um, with a mix of racial and ethnic ethnic backgrounds, mostly Protestants, a couple of uh, folks in Catholic contexts. Uh, Christina McRory wrote a very strong chapter, for example, on Catholic social teaching that I think will be super interesting, not just to Catholics, but really for for Protestants in all kinds of ways. Um, and then we divided the book into three sections, basically, so a section on biblical texts and kind of. Coming from biblical scholars and interpretation that way, then we did a section on uh, Christian theology, uh, which had a variety of of theological voices, including Drew's, and then a section on kind of history and contemporary praxis, and and uh, had some historians and some other uh, you know activists and public theologians so forth. Um, And in the in the mix of that, one of the things we I think we Drew might be able to speak to this, but I think we were most happy with is we had some sort of um sort of intersection uh short chapters uh including a a sermon by duke kwan and some other uh pieces uh gimbia kettering wrote a very interesting sort of uh, semi-autobiographical piece uh that are kind of um Kind of interlude chapters that, that really draw out, uh, some of the, the sort of, uh, the marrow, I think, of some of these issues, uh, beyond a kind of academic sort of you know, uh, feel that most of the essays are. So, um, I'm really excited about it. I think there's a lot of wisdom in there. It was a, it was a dream for me to have the opportunity to work with all of these scholars. And, um, I will not, I will not lie. Uh, large edited, uh, volumes are a lot of work <laughs> on, the, on the editorial end, but, yeah. but it was, it was, it was really fun work and, uh, working with Drew, of course, as, as you know, Jared is, is always a invigorating process. So. Amen. Yeah, that's
1: good. I I do gotta let you know, Michael, and you can tease John about this, but we have not had John Frankie on yet. So, oh, um, I thought can, you
2: had. My apologies. No, we haven't. Okay. So
1: you can you can go ahead and you can tease him a little bit. At some point, <laughs> we're definitely going to get him on. Um, he's been on my list of folks that I've got to get on sometime. But but you have permission to um, tease him for not for you beating him,
0: even though <laughs>
1: <Okay>. our relationship <laughs> goes back so much farther. Yeah. Right. Um, right. But yeah, as a book, I mean, I agree with you just in terms of the wide-ranging um voices. And um I was actually quite moved by some of the um essays and just the biblical interpretation and work and thoughtfulness. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the stories. There are really powerful stories on the ground of people actually working right. this out. So it's I think that praxis, right along with these academics, it's just going to be really powerful. So anyway, yeah, I really appreciate uh, Michael played a very significant role. He was the kind of senior scholar of the editorial team. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, really appreciated his uh, experience and helpful guidance uh, through the process as well. So um, really proud of this work. Uh, but kind of switching gears a little bit. Um, yeah. Well, did you want to just maybe say something really briefly about the liberating uh
2: Yeah, sure. Yeah. yeah, sure. So so um you may or may not be aware that about gosh, now probably twenty-five years ago or so, um, a book called Missional Church came out, which was a uh conglomeration uh piece that was edited by uh Daryl Guder um, that, that basically tried to wrestle with the question, you know, what is uh, the mission of God uh, vis-a-vis North America, if North America is now no longer the sending nation of missionaries, right, but is really a a post-christendom kind of environment, um, what does what does the church look like? And try to try to think about that in, in those terms. And and what John and I had tried to do um in this book liberating scripture is to try to take one of the pieces of of implications of that of that book which was trying to wrestle with what happens if you start theologically with the with the mission of God as as God's purposes and not you know what are our activities uh, as the as the Christian community understood as mission um, we've tried to take the kind of the hermeneutical piece, um, and sort of ground that theologically and so forth. And, and essentially the book has two parts as, as Drew knows. And, and I, I should say just while we're talking that, that John and I were pretty much jumping up and down when Drew had, uh, agreed to, to write the foreword. So, um, just <laughs> so you know, no plug there, but, um, the book has basically two parts. One is kind of a, a a retrospective and a kind of an explanation of the twenty year, twenty five year process of this of this uh, developing uh, sort of hermeneutical um, approach uh, that that um, we've been involved with for a long time. And then the second part is is John and me, uh, John and I, trying to uh, essentially suggest that as strong as that movement has been and as positive as we think that movement has been, we think it needs to go in really much more explicitly liberative uh, direction. And so uh, we both bring in, uh, I think, a very, uh, you know, for lack of a better term, a kind of uh, very postmodern sort of approach to thinking about how um, how texts function, how formation happens, uh, what it looks like theologically, to uh to sort of decenter um you know traditional assumptions about about both texts and and communities and think about what happens when um the the you're starting with texts assuming that they are that they are uh describing a god who is fundamentally about the liberation of of everything that is in bondage to to sin and to structures of evil and, you know, racism and on and on and on. So that, that's been a, that's been a fun project. And I I think in some ways that book sort of gets as close as I've gotten to, you know, a a chance to articulate exactly what I'm trying to, trying to do as a, as a scholar and as a, as a person of faith. So that's been Mm -hmm. been fun. Thank you.
1: So, switching gears now, um, yeah. you know that we like to, you know, really get into the Bible, um, <laughs> and we like to ground our conversation around biblical texts. And so, uh, what passage have you chosen to ground our conversation around today?
2: So, I was thinking uh, because uh, this is what I contributed to the to the reparations volume that you and I did, uh, Drew. Um, I'm going to read a couple short little sections from Leviticus 25 of all places. This is hey, the hey. The jubilee uh section yeah. so i'll be reading uh from leviticus 25 8 through 17 and then I'm michael
0: gonna... i i must warn you i might be the only person who got excited when you mentioned leviticus,
1: <laughs> <laughs> leviticus.
0: <Let's>
2: yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah we, we we biblical scholars and and uh you know i i, I and
0: bible I nerds generally
2: for, yes. for people who know their
0: scriptures though and have uh, like a passion around like um uh, god's economic vision
2: mm-hmm. yeah I mean,
0: this is a great place to go.
2: This is, this is it, yeah, exactly. So, I'll I'll be reading verses eighteen to seventeen, and then I'm going to jump down to verses twenty three and twenty four, if that's okay, um, just to kind of focus real closely on on several things. So, I'm I'll be reading from the New Revised Standard Version, the updated edition. Uh, so it says it starts out in verse eight: "You shall count off seven weeks of years, seven times seven years." so that the period of seven weeks of years gives you 49 years. Then you shall have the trumpet sounded loud on the 10th day of the seventh month, on the day of atonement. You shall have the trumpet sounded throughout all your land, and you shall hallow the 50th year, and you shall proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a Jubilee for you. You shall return every one of you to your property and every one of you to your family. That fiftieth year shall be a jubilee for you. You shall not sow or reap the aftergrowth or harvest the unpruned vines. It is, a ju- for it is a jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You shall eat only what the field itself produces. In this year of jubilee, you shall return every one of you to your property. When you make a sale to your neighbor or buy from your neighbor, you shall not cheat one another. When you buy from your neighbor, you shall pay only the number of years until the jubilee. The seller shall charge you only for the remaining crop years. If the years are more, you shall increase the price, and if the years are fewer, you shall diminish the price, for it is a certain number of harvests that are being sold to you. You shall not cheat one another, but you shall fear your God, for I am the Lord your God. And then down to 23 and 24, the land shall not be sold in perpetuity for the land is mine. With me, you are but aliens and tenants throughout the land that you hold. You shall provide for the redemption of the land. The word of the Lord. Thanks
0: be God. Now I have to be disciplined and not jump into it straight away. But I'm, <laughs> I'm,
2: I'm excited, Michael. Um,
0: mate, when do you first remember encountering the scriptures?
2: Hmm. Yeah, you know, I I I don't remember a time when I when I hadn't, to be perfectly honest. Um uh, yeah. my, my grandfather and father were both pastors of of churches. Uh my grandfather uh was was really uh I mean, it'd be hard to describe him in any other way than a kind of Baptist fundamentalist. Uh he had a very, very uh rigid and and honestly uh for me very difficult uh kind of way of of looking at 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 the bible and uh you know this is i've never made a, a uh you know, loved him but uh you never never made a uh a, a, a secret of the fact that i think he left me with a lot of sort of theological and biblical scars uh to mm-hmm. be honest right um so, you know, I I grew up with you know, kind of knowing my bible in the in the way that that many evangelical protestants are taught to 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 know the bible and, you know, I I certainly have by no means stayed in that position. Um, you know, in terms of thinking of the bible as this kind of uh rule book and and you know, kind of describing a god who's out to get me if I if I mess up or something, right? Um, but uh from a very early age I can remember just the Bible kind of being infused in everything uh that that we did as a as a family and um some of that was very positive and some of it you know as I say was 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 pretty pretty challenging my my dad I don't know if you either of you are familiar uh with an organization called Young Life but my dad was a was a uh kind of high school uh I guess you'd call it a kind of parachurch ministry, you know, with high yeah. school kids. And so ran, uh, camps out here in California and, and, uh, Colorado and Canada for, for many years. And so I kind of grew up, you know, going to Christian camps as a kid and watching my dad, you know, basically, you know, give evangelistic, you know, messages to, to kids from, uh, you know, high schools that they had gotten to come to these camps that were in most cases, not, not Christian folk. Um So that was a big sort of part of that. Um, I remember you know, as I was thinking about, you know, you had mentioned this question would come up. I I'll tell you two very quick little things. I remember being probably six or seven, eight years old. And one of my first memories of becoming really interested in the Bible as, as a kind of object of of study potentially was um, actually uh, my folks took me to some movie at some, again, one of these Christian camps or something. And we saw this, this film about the discovery of Noah's Ark, if you can believe that. There was something about, you know, they had, (laughs) I mean, yeah. And, you know, at, at six or seven, nine years old, whatever I was, I was like, oh my gosh. And they talked about, you know, we've discovered this gopher wood and, you know, Mount Ararat or something. And I was like, okay, I'm all in. I want to be, I want to be an archeologist and do that, you know, and, and I look back now and I just kind of cringe. Right. And, you know, I remember seeing in junior high, you know, a, a horrible, horrible film at a youth group thing, you know, on basically, you know, describing the rapture and how all, you know, half of the people in the movie disappeared all of a sudden. And there was, you know, weeping and gnashing of teeth. And I mean, that's the kind of stuff I grew up right. with. And so where that ended up, I don't mean to go too long, but where that ended up is I I eventually as an undergraduate got a chance to travel to Central America back in the mid 1980s um, during a lot of the the wars and violence and so forth that were going on and you know post-revolutionary Nicaragua um mm. and uh, Guatemala Honduras uh, Costa Rica and saw things that that I just had never imagined um mm. going on and realizing mm-hmm. that it was not only that but it was my government and in many cases mm. uh Christians supporting my government yeah. who were doing uh just her you know in effect uh either explicitly or complicitly doing things that were just devastating human lives. And I remember yeah. coming back and thinking, I don't know what that is, but that just can't, there, there's there got to be something different, right? Um, mm-hmm. And yeah. that, that, that sort of desire to find out if there was anything left in this tradition that would speak to injustice and poverty and war and violence um, is kind of what led me on a on a spiritual quest to kind of go to seminary and try to figure out some of these questions. And, you know, I had heard of liberation theology and so forth, but didn't know what I was really getting into. And mm. honestly, seminary didn't turn in to be very, hel- turned out to be very helpful in some of those regards, but, <laughs> but it, but it was really, it was really not, I, you know, I, I, I would have never thought I'd ended up being a, you know, a biblical scholar in a million years. Mm. So, yeah, it's, you know, I've, I've continued to continue to take students back to, uh, to Latin America and, you know, been studying really poverty and sociological stuff around, around inequality for, you know, 25, 30 years. And that's just kind of become my thing. So Mm. anyway, I don't know if that helps, but
1: yeah, no, absolutely. And, and, you know, I've heard some of your story before, but it's interesting hearing other pieces, um, together right now.
0: Um, Drew, they're quite two different, very different scars, right? Oh, yeah. like the the, the scars yeah. of like uh, american rapture mm-hmm. theology mm-hmm. which always seems to involve films um, <laughs> right. I, I didn't i didn't grow up with dispensationalism like right. i was spared all the, the scars i can't relate to right. Right. um but i've got so many friends who are but right. um then the trauma, the, yeah. the um trauma of um uh not believing ridiculous things but seeing horrific things right. and the right. kind of um impact of uh these theologies like um yeah i find the intersection between the things that you've had to work through to find Mm -hmm. a a faith that is life-giving really fascinating
2: yeah yeah it's it's quite powerful been a journey for sure (laughs) yeah
0: yeah
1: so you already kind of hinted at it as you were telling your story but maybe you can make it a little more explicit like Mm -hmm. as you think about your encountering of the bible um how would you describe it like was the Bible your experience, an encounter mm-hmm. with the Bible, an oppressive thing, a liberating thing, something else, something more nuanced? How would you describe that, yeah. um, especially in those early years as you're growing and yeah. journeying?
2: Yeah, I think that's that's really helpful. In fact, I would I would say certainly in the early years, I think I I probably experienced the Bible more. I don't know if I could have articulated that I felt that I experienced it as being oppressive. um, But certainly the way that it was uh, served up was, was fairly oppressive. Right. Um, I remember, you know, there was a, there was a, a deep sense, and I don't know what this is in my, you know, psychology or, or personal psychosis or whatever, but I was, I was the kid, you know, at, you know, twelve years old, who was worried about, uh, you know, what I had done that day. Even if I had, you know, let fly a bad word or something, you know, at school, I was the guy who was racked with guilt, and you mm-hmm. know, would kind of go to my dad or or mom and try to, you know, figure out how to make sense of the fact that, you know, I I was I was such a, uh, you know, a, a hopeless, you know, sinner kind of thing, and and mm-hmm. that. That really, I think, included thinking of the Bible again as a as if not oppressive. It certainly was described, and I I believed it as as being a a liberative thing. But what I would say is that liberation was very narrow, right? It was the it was Jesus (laughs) Jesus in my heart, right? I I mean, I didn't go back to you know something you said, Jared. I I couldn't have told you what dispensationalism is. I couldn't have told you any of those things. It was a very if you will a kind of low church theology right but it was very real that Jesus came and and died and was raised to make sure that I could be with Jesus in heaven right i mean it was this very narrow uh you know fire insurance policy kind of theology that i just find very you know deeply deeply troubling and i spent the mm-hmm. rest of my career trying to work that out i think drew the second part of my life has been and this really started probably in in seminary but but even more you know once i got into to to you know the sort of a, another master's degree and then ultimately the phd project is i i realized um the bible was incredibly liberating uh if right i learned that it was not a a selection of answers to all the potential questions that i had but it was actually asking better questions of of life right so i that shifted from a kind of rule book answer book uh you know this is kind of all the things you need to know sort of you know a uh, playbook for life kind of thing it shifted into really a um a kind of book of wisdom for me in a, in a lot of Mm -hmm. ways. Right. And, 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 and that, that notion of salvation then, and the liberation that the, that the Bible was talking about that God was up to in the world uh, really became something that was, that was cosmic in scope. Right. Um, Not just about me and my individual soul or something. Right. But really, Uh, you know, a kind of uh, both this worldly and beyond, potentially, uh, you know, liberation of all that separates us from each other and from God. Um, you know, when I started discovering, you know, uh, Second Temple Jewish thought, for example, about Mm. the remaking of this world as opposed to a kind of spiriting us off into some you know, uh, place third rock from the sun where we could avoid the, you know, the rapture that started making tons of sense to me and, and felt great. And I guess I would say, so, you know, I don't know if this answers the question very well, but I would say both oppressive and liberating, right. In different, in different measures and in different ways. The thing that came to mind when I, when I think about this question is, uh, is Renita Weems's comment where she says mm. that it's not texts mm. that have power, but interpretations, Um, that, that's really kind of where I, where I come at this, that is to say the interpretations of the Bible that I grew up with were, were in some cases, uh, liberating to be sure, but in many ways had some oppressive qualities that, that I've really had to kind of, you know, continue to wrestle with and, and, and work through my system. Um, but recognizing, uh, who has voice, whose power uh, is being wielded mm-hmm. through the through the uh interpretation of text that's really what has gone on and i've seen that almost in a in a kind of incoherent way in my own life, just, just hearing different preachers and, you know, theologians talk as if this is the final word on things. And when I've discovered, oh my gosh, people in church history never thought the way I was raised, yes. you know, that <laughs> yeah. was like, that was just the most liberating experience ever. So I, I guess I would almost call it a kind of quasi, you know, liberation around the text as much as the text yeah. itself, you know.
0: Yeah, that's, that's fascinating and leads perfectly into our, our next question. And, um, this question is kind of the, the heart of the impulse of inverse. Um, mm-hmm. it's around people's hermeneutics and mm-hmm. I've made Chad who keeps teasing me because he had to go and look up what hermeneutics, uh, meant that, and the fact that we keep using that term, mm-hmm. but Michael, you've been candid about the, the scars that you've received from the tradition and, um, uh, a gospel of fire insurance and then realizing that actually everything's on fire now It's christians <laughs> that are setting a lot of those fires alight so like, <laughs> sure. but if if you would invite us into um ways that you've come to to see the text to read the text um that our listeners who are realizing that everything's on fire um <laughs> quite i mean quite literally Uh, for, for those of us in parts of the world where the ecological crisis isn't a long way off, it's actually right right now, Um, uh, would you invite us into your journey and your way of seeing that makes the texts, um, being something that is healing life, giving and liberating, um, uh, more accessible for people. Mm -hmm. Sure, I can,
2: I can try. Yeah, I, a few things come to mind. I mean, the the first thing, if I can go back just again, and kind of to my own experience, the first thing I would say is, is uh, being a, you know, uh, a 19, 20 year old spending roughly 10 months over a number of different trips uh, throughout Central America, experiencing and getting to meet, uh, you know, Really interesting uh, biblical scholars and theologians and activists and folks that you know our our group had to you know move around uh, surreptitiously to get to meet with some of the folks that we met mm-hmm. with because their lives were in danger because of their their uh, liberative uh, moves. That was incredibly. Uh, shaping for me right um yeah. i just i first discovered paulo Freire as a as an 18 wow. 19 year old in college um I, i'll be honest i was i was told for a for a preparatory class for one of these trips i took to central america uh in college the, the where i was assigned to read you know pedagogy of the pedagogy oppressed of and the oppressed. Yeah, and, yeah. <laughs> and my and it's my the- it is the text, right? And my, yeah. my, 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 professor was, you know, just, just, you know, waxed poetic about how important this book was. And of course, you know, if you've read that text, uh, it's difficult, it is a really, it is not, it does not lay itself yeah. out there. Uh, you know, if, I- at least for a, for a, a young, you know, white kid that had grown up in, you know, middle America kind of thing. It just, it didn't, it didn't, I, I it was just a lot of, a lot of verbiage. And, um, but what was interesting was I picked up the kind of basic idea, uh, you know, moving out of the banking model of education, for example, but also more deeply this notion of conscientization that that he yeah. talks about. That that just became, you know, my sort of late motif, if you will, for the rest, really, the rest of my of my life and career. So. So in some ways that connects back to, to the previous question that that you asked Drew, right? For me, the Bible, the Bible, and this connects again to the sort of the Renita Weems comment that I'm that I mentioned, you know, is that the the Bible um has the power to be liberative, but we have to be conscientized. Mm-hmm into, as you said, Jared, the, the way that the world is on fire and begin to, uh, begin to read from that, that perspective. Right. Um, so I began honestly to, you know, after, after traveling in Central America, I studied Marxism religiously. I became Mm -hmm. convinced that, you know, Che Guevara was the way to go. I mean, it was the whole Mm -hmm. kind of, you know, early twenties kind of, kind of thing what i ended up ultimately taking away from that uh you know among among other things is is just this notion that a revolution is necessary right a mm-hmm. revolution in our in our thinking in our process in the world concretely and pragmatically right and and particularly here in the united states uh you know we've had multiple um go rounds with attempted revolutions you know whether mm-hmm. <laughs> whether we're talking about Um, you know, the, uh, you know, various, various uh, rebellions and uprisings during the slavery period, during the civil rights movement, you know, more recently, we've got, you know, things like Me Too and Black Lives Matter and so forth and, and Occupy Wall Street. These are all to me, literally eruptions of, of a desire of people to to live in a world of abundance, and what we have done is we've created a a theology too often of scarcity, right? Where there's only so much. Yeah. You know, I, I was raised with grace coming out my pores in terms of what I knew I was supposed to believe, but in terms of my ability to embody that and experience that that grace of God, it was it was very very measured, uh, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. So, mm-hmm. so the, the, the outgrowth of that again is for me that the Bible then becomes, as I sort of alluded to earlier, the Bible becomes for me, wisdom for the road, um, a kind of companion, a kind of shaping, uh, thing. Um, you know, I'll, I'll be honest, I'm not, I'm not your Christian, uh, and maybe this is criminal to say, but I'm not your Christian who literally reads the Bible, every single day in a, in a hyper kind of devotional way. I've, I've read the Bible so much in one sense that it has at least certain parts of it have just infused my very way of thinking. I can't reason outside of wrestling with the, the Bible. It doesn't mean I, mm-hmm. I, I think of that in a kind of linear sense, but it's just that the Bible has become part of my thought pattern or my thought process. And, and I think that's what, really christian you know christian reading of the bible ought to be about and ultimately for me that means that this is about a communal process the bible is not not directed to individuals uh we westerners have really challenging uh time getting past our you know our atomized kind of individualism right and our 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 sort of um enlightenment you know perspectives and then the and then what that does for me, at least in my own sort of thinking, is that the Bible really is a book of is or is an anthology, really of formation. Mm-hmm. It's formation, right? Yeah. It is formation for communities who might actually be able to latch on to a vision of of what God is up to in a way that that is life giving and beyond. That it is yeah. about the becoming you know when i when i was growing up I, I thought the idea was i was supposed to become just like jesus right which always was impossible and and what i've become what i've begun to realize as i've continued to read the bible and wrestle with what it's what it's about and think theologically about liberation is that i think i think the bible is trying to say follow Jesus become more human right because something Uh about what Jesus was doing I think was becoming the most full Jesus he was he was called to be and and somehow I think I'm called to be the most Michael that I can be because there's only one of me there's only one of each of you and and that's what God needs in the world so to speak right if that, that sounds kind of centering ourselves i don't mean it that way but it mm-hmm. i think that's what's going on so for me there's the last thing i'll say on this unless you want to continue more would be it is a book it is a book an anthology of formation but for me this is really the important piece and this i tried to tried to kind of tease out a little bit in one of the other books that that drew mentioned the missional economics book I don't like primarily thinking in terms of, of principles and conclusions. I like thinking of the Bible as forming our reasoning, right? Yeah. And, and yeah. so I would point to, to, for example, Romans 12, 2, right? That we are not to be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we can discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect, right? And that, that renewing of the mind, I think, is fascinating because because paul seems to be saying there that that actually is not only possible but it's necessary right and it's it's communal the prior verse right is to present your bodies as a single living sacrifice right Mm -hmm. um this is a communal statement and and so rather than say well i believe the bible says you know we should do x Um, morally on this issue, or we should do why morally on this economic issue or whatever it might be, or does the Bible literally say in, you know, in, in exactly so many words that we should have reparations for the African-American community in North America. I don't think the Bible does those things, but what the Bible does do is it shapes and forms our moral imaginations, our reasonings in ways that, that then those, those questions that we bring to it um, we're faced back, if you will from the text with even deeper questions and better questions and 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 pushes us out of out of the kind of control that we otherwise would attempt to have over the text
0: Yeah.
1: Thanks, Michael. You can tell, you know, someone who loves thinking not just about biblical texts in general, but hermeneutics, right? <laughs> um, as you really dived in and um, help people kind of process a little bit about your own approach to hermeneutics, your own lens, and certainly offering a gift that I think can be liberative as other people are also on this journey of trying to um, experience this necessary revolution, right? That you talked about mm-hmm. these eruptions and how are Collective moral reasoning might uh, orient us towards participating in God's revolution exactly. right here right. in the yes. world. So right. Right. I think that um, that's a really great segue for us to kind of uh, that's a perfect maybe, text,
0: yeah. Lean it's into the, the institutionalization right? of of regular revolution. <laughs> exactly. That's right.
1: So so how might you know as you kind of guide us into conversation around um, Leviticus twenty five? How might you bring these gifts in terms of our own hermeneutics, our own uh, reasoning that might, I mean, I'm curious how someone who thinks about biblical wisdom in that way and how it has infused your own sense of reasoning, right? That you can't think outside of the logics mm-hmm. of of the biblical stories and texts. Um, how how can you bring that to bear on Leviticus 25 and <laughs> certainly uh, enter in uh, with its relationships to reparations mm-hmm. um, and, and what that might mean uh, for us to reason together?
2: Yeah, no, I'm super excited to, to get to explore this and and looking forward to what you can you can both help me understand even more and and wrestle with even more i mean i think the first thing and and if it's okay i'm just going to talk a little bit about you know this will be a a preview of the little chapter in our in our book that i did um one of the things i i stress with my own students my own university students is that i want them to understand uh moral logics right and and so to kind of preface this a little bit I I try and I'm not a I'm not an ethicist I'm not an I'm a, an expert in this but I try to uh, expose them to a variety of 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 moral uh ways of reasoning right so we we look oftentimes in my classes at things like libertarianism and utilitarianism and uh you know deontology with uh, Immanuel Kant right uh, we look at, uh, John Rawls, for example, will look at Aristotelian uh, you know, understandings of of telos and purpose and so forth, right? Um, virtue and and, and such. And then, you know, occasionally even think about, you know, how how do those kind of major Western ways of, of reasoning morally, how do they uh often founder on uh, the shores of, again, individualism and uh, kind of, uh, you know, uh, fixation on principle as opposed to embodiment and and so forth that yeah. we find in, um, you know, in, in much more marginalized uh, communities, right, um, as well as Indigenous communities and so forth. So the, the point there is, um, and again, I do not profess in any way to be an expert on those things, but what I try to do is set the bible alongside some of those things as a conversation mm. partner right mm. um because i think student what the reason that the, the, the way that that helps i think is and I, i'll get to <laughs> the 25 here in a second the, the way that that helps right is that um students immediately recognize as we sort of unpack their their utilitarian tendencies for example mm-hmm. which which we all are at some level um they recognize the libertarian tendencies in our in our in our society at least here in in California right and so yeah. i
0: was about to say Mark, we we probably all are but americans more than us. Yeah, yeah no absolutely. A extra. Yeah, absolutely yeah we are
2: we are extra that's a very good way to put it right so so i try to start by by helping them understand hey in utility right what we do in utilitarian thinking is we focus almost entirely on the results, on the consequences, on the on the on the on the outcomes of our actions, right? And so, fundamentally, you know, utilitarianism basically says, "Hey, you know, whatever does the best for the most, right?" Weighing kind of these, yeah. you know, notions of pleasure and pain with Jeremy Bentham, right? the The idea <laughs> there is that um, utilitarianism works really well if you are part of the majority. But mm-hmm. it actually tramples on, you know, minority voices, right? And so, mm-hmm. as a kind of counterbalance to that, right? Uh, libertarianism comes in uh, full force and says, you know, you own your body, you own yourself. It's all up to you, right? And and you, uh, your. Um, autonomy in the world is is sort of predicated on a notion on notions of consent on on notions of, of again self-ownership and so forth and what I try to help students see more inductively than 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 anything is is that I think particularly libertarianism just flat out does not show up in the Bible I have mm. yet to be able to find a a shred of libertarian logic in the Bible whatsoever because Um, Not because libertarianism doesn't work really well if we're thinking about, uh, you know, again, bodily autonomy or something. Right. But but it doesn't work well in terms of uh, moving into community and and thinking, you know, about what what happens, uh, Jared, as you said, you know, ecologically in the in the seventh or 100th generation from us today. Right. Um, Or even or even now. And so, so what I what I try to do then with with Leviticus twenty five is to say, notice that this text is coming at a whole range of assumptions or uses that has a bunch of assumptions that are just, for lack of a better term, are just revolutionary from a mm. from the perspective of a society that is bathed. In I think primarily, you know, utility and 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 liberty in in, in a narrow sense, right? Um, I mean, for for just for one obvious, at least to me, kind of obvious thing is right. The, the idea of the jubilee is that every 50th year, the land is to be reverted back to its original owner, right? Um, and there's some there's some caveats about what happens within walled cities and so forth, but we don't need to get into those those minutia. The basic point is. There's a a schematic assumption, right? Again, I say schematic here because, you know, this is the the sort of biblical narrative that says there was a moment in which, you know, the people entered the land and, and we could get into all the the colonizing questions around that as well. Right. But, but the people enter the land and what happens is that they get divided up by, by tribe and clan and so forth. And every, every individual family gets a plot. Right. And over the course of every succeeding 20, 40 years, The assumption is people are gonna have bad crop years, they're gonna encounter difficulty in various ways, and eventually people are gonna lose their land, it's gonna be bought up by others. This Jubilee text comes in and basically says, from the perspective of God, and this is what I find it most interesting, God says, we are going to do regular iterative wealth redistribution. That's right. In the most concrete sense. Now you know there's debates about how much of this was actually done and so forth, and you know some have debated uh, in-
0: until X two and X four, right. right? Exactly,
2: <laughs> right? Whether whether there was an actual in you know uh, kind of institutional you know thing that happened every fifty years, there's some debate around that. What I find fascinating is even if that's the case, the the authors and editors of, of of the scriptures actually decided to leave this text in as mm-hmm. a window into the value system of God is the way yeah. I would put it, right? So, so even if you question some of the historicity of this, it functions like an economic parable. It's like this yeah. is this is a window into reality from God's perspective, and you know, for for North Americans at least, I think it is incredibly refreshing and and revolutionary to think that wealth redistribution is just ipso facto part of what god's about and to me that's that right. just, just exciting right yeah yeah um so i i'll, I'll...
0: It, it, even without getting to jesus but particularly right. if you spend any time with jesus right and um i mean michael you know um drew and i harp on about the same stuff all the time right. <laughs> um, liberation and nonviolence. as long as it's a liberating nonviolence and a nonviolent revolution Amen. like liberation yes. right um but as much as jesus talks about enemy love there is more material and jesus whole ministry is shaped by these texts right. it's almost yes. jesus's big thing
2: yes absolutely and, uh,
0: what what i find so incredible is people's blindness mm. to the GB, jubilee economics of yeah. jesus which actually get him crucified but when okay. when i'm talking about our lord uh, we're talking about leviticus 25 and we'll <laughs> le- leave those reflections but um no, I think
2: you're absolutely right. Absolutely
0: right. Yeah,
1: yeah no, I, I I agree. I mean, I remember, you know, when I just the the power of Leviticus in terms of thinking about freedom from slavery, restoration mm-hmm. from land, um recovery of debt, release from debt, like mm-hmm. it's just powerful and it's it's so encompassing, right, for a whole range of ways that uh, humans find themselves um, captive, struggling, oppressed. And I think that, um, as you said, Michael, it doesn't really matter if they never practiced it or not. Right? <laughs> um, um, maybe if they didn't, then then it's a, a, an exposure of our right. often willingness to skirt, right? What God is doing in the world and what God, what God desires of us. Um, mm-hmm. but it doesn't take away from the ethical call and vocation and responsibility that we have uh, for each other. And I think that you know, when I I um, with students, um, in the past, I think this coming spring will be the first year that I won't do it or at least won't, at least for this one year at least. But um, but I've had them reading Basil,
0: right? Mm, mm.
1: Um, and some so of it good. is it's like On social I mean, just, justice, right? Just and the collective, right? Social justice, the economic implications, and the ways that he uh, sees it all. Uh, the the wealthy, right? It's, it's mm. like they've stolen, right? Yes, exactly. And they need so to right. give exactly. it back, right? Right. And right. I think like deeply rooted. It there's jubilee whether i don't know if he's conscious and there's other things that they're shaping him and all that but but within this tradition is this jubilee ethic that's running so powerly powerfully through um so many different christian traditions um and that collective reasoning and our collective Mm. embodiments of what this ought to look like um has so often been lost so this particular week i literally touched on what jared was just talking on with my <laughs> students um from my african-american theology class we were talking about luke and like mm-hmm. just the way mean? that you can't read luke yeah. and escape jubilee no right? absolutely, like, everywhere peaks out of every corner and <laughs> behind every bush you know some people you know satan is behind every book bu- no jubilee's behind every bush <laughs> in the gospel of luke That's for good. jesus That's good. and every parable and teaching is just there just won't it's unrelenting right yeah um and and i think that. Um, we would do us well to study the same texts that Jesus did. Yes, and to be informed exactly. by the same wisdom um, yes. that is shaping his own moral imagination and shaping his own reasoning to the particular challenges that he's facing in his day. Because I think it also has really significance and import for our own imaginations and reasoning
2: today as well. A hundred percent. Yeah. No, that's super helpful. And you just you just healed a, a part of me by by saying it that way, that was, that was great. Um, I, yeah, if I can add just a couple things and then, and then mm, take please. it, t- take it toward Jesus, right. As, as, as you were both doing, mm-hmm. um, one of the things that I would want to emphasize about Jubilee that is powerful for, for me, at least is this, 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 uh, assertion, Right in in you know from from God right uh, that the land is mine right you are <laughs> you are gerim yep. right this this word gerim is hard to hard to render into into good English I mean the 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 old traditional and I think quite problematic translation is alien or something like that strangers, right yeah. uh, strangers strangers you know, sojourners but I like to translate this vulnerable outsiders I think that's really captures uh-huh. more of what's going on these the gerim can be uh, depending on the text, it can be either folks who are literal foreigners to that people, or it can be folks who are also Israelite but out of their own district, right? So they are yeah. they are naturally uh, vulnerable economically, socially, and so forth without without their kinship connections and so forth. Hmm. So so when God says, you know, the land is mine, you are Gereem, you are vulnerable outsiders and tenants with me, right? It it points to this very i think interesting particularly for for our our questions around um land and coloniality and white supremacy and so forth it's it's pointing to a kind of moral reasoning again that assumes that the land belongs ultimately to god and yeah. i love i love the part where it says when you buy land right you're actually buying a number of harvests you're not buying the mm-hmm. land mm-hmm stays mine right Mm -hmm. god is the landlord who provides the land who for those who have lost it and ironically god says in effect in the text right those of you who think you are owners the ownership class you are actually tenants and and Mm -hmm. gary right that's that's so important to kind of capture the, the way that that's kind of turned back around yeah. The last, that maybe another thing I would just quickly say is, is notice that, and I think this is, you you all talk about, you know, Jubilee being shot through in Luke. I would actually say biblical justice always starts from the bottom of the system. Mm-hmm. Yes, and good. this, this is shot through the entire Bible, right? Yeah, uh, that's yes, right. So, so I've always tell my students, you know, when we talk, you know, in the United States about politics, for example, or we listen to a, a politician who might be running for president or whatever, what what usually happens is they say, you know, my policies or my, my, my platform will be the best thing that the middle class has ever seen. Right. Or, yeah, you know, upper way. middle class. <laughs> <Yeah>. We <laughs> always we always pitch it yeah. to the people who have the most power and. And the Bible always starts with the widow, the orphan, the gharim. That's right? right. If those people are are faring well, then you are moving toward becoming a just society. And, and yeah. even though we are not a theocracy in in either Australia or or the United States, um, I think that's a pretty positive value to to, to sort of carry into our conversations. Mm-hmm. And then and then where that goes, I think is and and this is something that I would say is for me has become. Perhaps the most obvious thing that is overlooked in most, uh, unfortunately, too much of our Christian uh, reasoning around justice issues and liberation is the Bible is just fixated on unmet human need. That's right. Need is kind of, you know, when you talk in terms of utilitarianism, for example, you're talking about, well, what are the consequences? If you're talking about liber- libertarianism, you're talking about what is, you know, what is, what do I own? What do I control? What do I have autonomy? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The Bible says, phooey, with all of that stuff, the need of those who do not have what they need to survive and to flourish as full human beings you cannot have a society of shalom if there is unmet need. And somehow yeah. American Christians just gloss right over the need question. And we go right to things like, well, does somebody deserve my help or something, which is, you know, the Bible just, you know, rules that out as, as any. Anyway. Yeah. And then as you say, right, you get to Jesus in Luke four, who, you know, stands up and, and, and reads Isaiah and, and, you know, uh, fascinating to me is, you know, how the text in Isaiah says, I, I was. I've been anointed, you know, to bring good news to the poor and so forth. I've been christened. I've been Christed mm-hmm. to do this. I've been Messiah to do this. Yeah, that's actually Isaiah talking, right? right. Uh, yeah, which is Monday which 61. is fascinating. And then Jesus appropriates that and says, "Today this has been fulfilled in your hearing." The last line, as you as you both know, is really a, a statement of jubilee, right? That this is yeah. the acceptable year of the Lord. Of the Lord. What's, yeah. what's What's so great in to me. And and isn't brought out adequately enough by, by most of our, our sermons, for example, is they decide they want to throw him off a cliff after he you know after yep, he delivers right. this stuff. Yeah, that's if right. that's not a good indication that, that they recognized the revolution that he was talking about, uh and and how offensive it, it was to their sensibilities. I mean, this is kind of crazy, you know. Yeah, yeah. that's right. That's good.
0: So that's good. good.
2: Yeah.
1: And I think that reframing, right, of um, I mean, I think that's where your work is so powerful is the reframing of the kind of questions that the Bible wants us to grapple with, centering on like unmet need, right? Mm-hmm. Um, um, it's not the kind of questions that I mean, and you do this even in your um in your essay, like you begin, you know. All the all the different reasonings and why you know, reparations just isn't actually feasible, right? right, that, right. That's how people want to start the conversation. Right, right. They're trying to find their way to skirt and avoid responsibility. It's the beginning of right, the conversation
0: right. Um, right.
1: And that's just not the logics. Um, you have to skirt completely the reasoning of biblical wisdom to go yeah. in that direction. And I think that's yeah. pretty powerful to make that so clear.
2: Well, yeah, that's I appreciate that. And I think what's what's interesting, right, is that is that both, you know, and again there are other moral logics that we can talk about, but both utilitarianism and libertarianism, I would argue, both de-emphasize historical realities, right? Yep. And they decontextualize everything, mm-hmm. right? So yeah. so they and, and it's fascinating to me that you know that Western moral logics have so often tended to go toward the the supra-historical principle
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. above
2: the embodied realities of life, right? And what yeah. the Bible does is says, no, 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 no. You actually can't skirt and decontextualize, skirt around and decontextualize, dehistoricize the realities of injustice that have taken place. In fact, you have to face them squarely, right? Yeah. yeah. There have been injustices over the last fifty years. Deal with it now, so that the future opens up, right? Yeah. Um, what we seem to to think is uh you know if if we don't talk about this too too uh intentionally right eventually everybody will forget about it or everybody yeah. will just give up right and i mean i'm sorry but i just you know in in the love of jesus i just have to call bs on that that just, <laughs> just not that's not true right yeah. um, there's something about this that says abundance actually exists but it it is only um, realizable, so to speak, right, when we begin to actually deal with deal with the fraught past and mm-hmm. and the fraught present, right? I, I'm mm-hmm. just convinced that you know you you read, I mean there's a famous article that I, I reference in in my essay by a guy named David Horowitz, right, who came up with all of the, as you said, Drew, these, all these reasons why, you know, reparations is wrong and da 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 da, da you know, and and basically it's just that he's starting with all the wrong sort of in my mind right all the wrong sets of of uh, assumptions from the get go right and yeah. and if we started with human need for example all kinds of things would shift in our in our moral sensibilities but but we're we're too convinced uh that um you know desert as in deservingness merit right this you know i mean I, yeah. if i could get rid of one story in the united states it would be the american dream because i think that is yeah. that is our our crushing myth uh that yeah. has some has some power in some context, right but it, the dark side or the shadow side of that story is is fundamentally dehumanizing and allows us to you know to uh, get away from our our complicity and our our connection to the situation you know I, i mentioned in the essay last point i'll mention in the essay that you know in the biblical world they actually thought in terms of a limited good right this is kind of an anthropological sociological term and the idea was that there's only so much of any given resource to go around whether it's water or money or land or whatever and so and this go- goes back to your 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 Basel question your comment, right? Is that is that the understanding there is that if I'm poor, that is somehow directly connected to somebody else in the community right. who is wealthy. That's right. 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 Yep. And and what we've done in in you know late twenty first century capitalism is assume that because Adam Smith said wealth can be continually created we don't see any connection between me and somebody else because apparently again going to the american dream mythology right they are in the situation they are in because of their own lack of initiative or hard work or whatever which yeah. is just hogwash you know so.
0: which is a deeply theological vision it, it, yeah. it's just got it's just got <laughs> little to do um <laughs> exactly. with the hebrew prophets uh, or the one we like believed to be messiah absolutely. like it's, absolutely um, but it's it's deeply like um michael drew and i have joked um uh and you know it's anecdotal and it's um broad brush strokes but the difference between australian like uh imaginary or like mentality and american is that an australian person um sees somebody who's down on their luck and goes oh my goodness that could have been me exactly um, right while an american goes glad that's not me <laughs> exactly <laughs> and it's it's so subtle um right. but it, even the political right has to appeal to like concern for the battlers right. as right. in those who are doing it tough yes. those with their backs against the, the wall um uh while uh, because um American exceptionalism uh, uh, certain strands of American um theology right. which right. um make, um uh, election and prosperity um not something that comes from below and is for all okay. <laughs> but but sets you apart and is for some against others yeah they're very different and e- even as you I-, I loved what you did michael in terms of um talking about like um uh just how um how much um uh, continental philosophical traditions fail in practice when it comes to these realities of who's on the receiving mm-hmm. end right, right um right. and uh there is a danger for some reading leviticus 25 that it turns into a new set of principles right, yeah, right. like right. a new right. abstraction right exactly you know that? actually leviticus 25 talks about um sabbath first mm-hmm. and sabbath is connected to like an ecological practice mm-hmm. um of um uh, even the creator rests um so our life isn't like enslaved to the market and right. god's in no hurry and we shouldn't be as well right um uh terry eagleton talks about one of the um, most wonderful things of either being a Jew, a Christian, or a Marxist is that you actually get to prize laziness. <laughs> <laughs> That's beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> which, which, is is so good. But it's it's a it's an ecological practice, um, but it's also a liberation praxis. Right. Like um, the number of times that Absolutely. it goes back to, um, don't forget, mm-hmm. um, you're enslaved in Egypt. Right. Um, it, that it, it is about who the creator is and what the creator's business is, right, right. Uh, both the goodness of creation, hey, this is mine, <laughs> I'll give it to who I please, and this is what you're to do with it if you're to have it, <laughs> Right. or actually what's implied is I'll
2: take it back. Right, right, absolutely, absolutely. That,
0: that's, a, that's a completely different way of considering neighbour, not absolutely. as an added extra once right. I'm sorted but we're into this together.
2: They're, yeah. they're different ways of seeing the world. Completely, completely. And, and and you know, we see this going all the way through the scriptures, right? I mean, just to to, to riff on this one little piece, I mean, notice what Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount in, in 624, right, where mm-hmm. he says you cannot serve God and, and wealth, right? Yeah. Um, that notion is that we are, we are in bondage to something, right? He says, you can't yeah. have two masters. You're going to love yeah. one and hate the one. You not, not you shouldn't. Right. You you, do, <laughs> right. you are, you are somehow caught. Right. And then what's fascinating to me is then he goes on and says, you know, so as you're seeking the kingdom, right. Don't worry about all these, all these things, which I always ask my students, you know, it doesn't seem like Jesus is kind of blowing smoke, Right, uh, because he's implying that all these things will just show up if you're you know, you got the right you write attitudes or something. And and I think fundamentally what Jesus is doing there is he's saying that's us meeting each other's each needs. Other's it's communal, right? When you when comment. you read those texts or the the rich young ruler kind of text when you read them individualistically right you you all you see is what you have to lose but we forget you know with the rich young ruler in luke or or in the the parallel passages in, in mark and matthew that the the statement is sell what you have and give the money to the poor. The community yeah. is benefiting. And then, you know, Peter comes back and says, well, what is going to happen to us? And Jesus says, you're going to get 100 times all of this stuff. And yeah. that's, I that's I think, because the idea is that the, the yeah. whole community now is going to have each yeah. other's yep. backs and, right. and be brothers and sisters, right? In this project. And, and just
0: in case you're in danger of thinking Jesus is either a utopian or talking about <laughs> some otherworldly reality, he adds at the end of that, and persecution. And persecutions in uh, apparently market, right. if you jump into Jesus actualization of jubilee economics, you can expect a hard time from economic <laughs> systems that actually benefit of holding land in maturity as if it was theirs and didn't belong to the creator
2: absolutely uh, yeah good. there is there is that's going good. to be a, you know there's a fight here yeah and and mm. and yes it must be you know it must be appropriately non-violent and all of that right but uh, but i mean one of the things that i keep coming back to uh you know over the years is there's a text in uh i don't remember the exact verse somebody can check me on this but there's a there's a text in amos that actually in romans uh 12 paul picks up on <laughs> and the and the the idea is um that you are to hate what is evil and yeah. Yeah, says, yeah,
1: you know, yeah, hate yeah. what is what evil what is evil cling yeah. to what is good I yeah. yeah. yeah, 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 always yeah.
2: F- I've always found that fascinating that I think it I can only speak for for myself and you know my my own community but it, but if I can speak sort of um at least in general terms it seems to me that north american christians have not learned to hate well enough the correct mm-hmm things that that's is to good. say we, we don't hate evil enough and i think yeah. that's that's where a a, a reparations conversation has yeah, to. that's go. right
0: that's
1: yeah right. it reminds me i remember um the first time i met uh fred shuttlesworth while well, he was still mm. alive in fact i got to wow. meet him multiple times but the first time was the only time where his like mind was like quite still there and he mm. talked quite eloquently about hating segregation. Mm. Mm-hmm. And it was quite yeah. striking and powerful the yeah. way he talked about it, right? right. right. Um, and I think that that's the kind of hate, right? Exactly. <laughs> that actually exactly. needs to be cultivated. So it right. wasn't people, right? Right. Um, yeah. But it was the systems that were destroying people's right. lives that's and the right. conditions that they were forced under. And I think that exactly. um, that kind of hate uh, actually is is righteous. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, imagine pedagogies, like uh, imagine formation processes in our churches where it came to questions of economics and it's like how how do we hate systems that (laughs) don't have that that triad of god's Mm. concern for the vulnerable um Mm, the the widow the the orphan the stranger um if that isn't functioning in the economic systems that we're a part of either because of authoritarian idealistic visions that actually come at the cost of millions who have to be hid away Mm -hmm. or um the quiet public um and the the numbing and the amnesia mm. of the realities of like late great neoliberalism um <laughs> uh uh, uh Fukuyama's end of history mm-hmm. where this is as good as it's get and we're right. just tweaking the system right like quite quite literally even from when drew and i started the podcast to now there is a change in the tone of conversation because people are aware that our current systems aren't working Mm -hmm. for most Mm -hmm. and there is this um I don't mean this in like any uh exaggerated um or um inflammatory way but trying to name this quite precisely sure um, there is a return to an attraction to fascism Mm -hmm. yeah um and A a form of nationalism um, in response to uh, uh, a global economic um, reality that has been made invisible um, to to many and people feel on the receiving end. Right. And um, or a return in some cases to authoritarian forms of socialism instead of democratic Mm -hmm. forms of socialism. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, And uh, that in itself points to... Um, any talk of those of us who bang on about nonviolence all the time, Mm um, it is, it is ridiculous and anemic unless it's connected to a nonviolent economic practice. Right. Right. And if those needs aren't being met, any talk of nonviolent protest is just ridiculous. Right. Like, um, we actually have to have forms of like, um, economic care and concern that, aren't doing violence right um so we can actually challenge those things even if they're small little experiments
2: yeah absolutely yeah. no completely agree yeah. and i and i think one of the the ways that that plays out concretely in churches um you know particularly in a in in a a a wider kind of white supremacist bathed uh society is that yeah. we we valorize and and honor uh you know politeness for example mm-hmm. rather rather than hating the things that need to be hated right and yeah, so yeah, that's right. we're we're trying to figure out you know i i mean i'd be the first person to want to say you know we should not hate our political you know adversaries right but but the idea that somehow we are at least in the United States, in my, my estimation, I think you're absolutely right. We are sliding very, very dangerously toward, toward real fascism. And, yeah. and we have to name that and, and, and hate the hate the process and the ideas, right. Um, for the sake of not just democracy, but I think for those of us who are people of faith, I think we have to say, this is anti-God, this is anti-Jesus. Yeah. Right. Um, and, 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 you know that that those are messy uh conversations but but to kind of uh become complicit by sanders and and say that you know th- all this is about you know being polite to one another just so that we don't raise these questions uh because that's politics and this is church or something i think that's that that is that is a a a demonic level of of uh you know um avoidance right um yeah. so yeah.
0: yeah. Well, Michael, um, can can I ask? I, I'm aware of the time, but um, you mentioned politics and and church. Um, if there isn't economic practices of neighbourliness amongst God's people, um, if, if communion is merely symbolic um, uh, or like uh, a, or confined to a sacramental kind of personalism that it doesn't become a, a public practice of, like, actually sharing bread with one another and making sure that some aren't going hungry while others stuff themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, what What is the place of church when there's no economic reality that looks like church? Can I put mm-hmm. the question like that? Like, what is, well, for those listening and going, actually, we do a little bit of, the works of mercy you, you mentioned mm-hmm. a friend who's got a chapter mm-hmm. on catholic social teaching mm-hmm. catholic framing of the works of mercy versus the works right. of justice are actually very helpful so maybe we've got a an op shop what do you guys call a thrift store a thrift <laughs> store at church um maybe we do some food parcels mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. but when it actually comes to to sharing together um we we don't actually have that thicker practice right, right. um what is the place of Churches being real alternatives?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. I, I don't know that I have a fantastic, you know, uh, examples or whatever, but I would say it's absolutely got to be the case that, you know, when, when I was growing up, I used to hear, hear phrases like, you know, the 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 church is, you know, a, a missionary outpost of the kingdom or something, <laughs> language, you know, that, that somehow this was kind of the, the foretaste of what God was up to but usually that had to do with, you know, us foretasting the way that we were going to get out of here eventually. Right. And as I mentioned (laughs) in the way, and, and, and I think what, what, what we have to be doing is um, experiencing uh, both difference, right. uh, Within the community. I think, I think our segregated 11 o'clock, you know, church hour in the United States is, is really, uh, you know, it's probably nothing short than an abomination. I mean, it is it is deeply problematic. We we have to, um, I think, be practicing actual engagement, uh, you know, with difference. And I'm thinking, you know, not just racial ethnic difference or gender difference or whatever, but but even socioeconomic difference, right? Uh, that that our communities. Um, that, uh, you know, talk about, uh, stewardship campaigns and giving campaigns. And yet we haven't actually dealt with the fact that, that we have homeless folks or how, you know, unhoused folks all around the corner. This is a, this is a deep problem. I think we're going to have to move toward a notion of ecclesiology that is more about belonging than about joining. Um, Mm. I'm really tired of, you know, of kind of the traditional, I mean, I'm thinking more here in an academic institutional sense right i'm kind of tired of the the dei sort of diversity you know inclusion sort of language that doesn't actually move toward the question of belonging right because inclusion often means you know you assimilate to be part of us and so i think that that is just that is just deeply problematic i think what what i would say also is the the opportunity um to, to use, whether it's our, our, our human, uh, resources or our buildings in different ways, right. To create uh community and, and refuge and so forth. I'll, I'll just give one. I, I don't know that this is exactly what you were, what you were thinking about, but, but I'll, I'll give you one quick little, uh, image that has never s- stopped, uh, kind of playing in my brain. There is a, a church in the Tenderloin in San Francisco, which is one of the most, uh, you know, economically uh, challenged areas of of San Francisco. It sits bounded by some of the greatest institutional and corporate wealth in the world, uh, some of the the, the most um, amazing uh, financial wealth in the world, and just, you know, within a a few square blocks. But in the Tenderloin uh, where there's, you know, there's lots and lots of uh, poverty, child poverty, uh, various kinds of things. um, There's a church there called St. Boniface. And uh, I remember, uh, you know, once or twice being in that neighborhood with students on a project or whatever and w- you walk in on a on a wednesday morning let's say uh, you know 11 11:30 in the morning you walk into the, the church and you listen because the 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 sanctuary is completely quiet right or or dark right no one no one is is in there moving around and, and you listen and all you can hear is snoring mm-hmm. because the pews are full of people who are unhoused Mm-hmm. and the doors of the church are open so that every day people can go in there and sleep all day in a space of safety right um to me that is being church um that you know that that's not the only thing it would look like but um you know i think so often we have this this notion of you know churches is is somehow a kind of community that has office hours and it's open at certain times and not i just i love that image that this is a a, a place of safety for for um, you know all of the all of the Samaritans and all of those who have gotten beaten up, right? And as you mm-hmm. said, as you said, Jared, you know it was it was Martin Luther King Jr. right who pointed out, you know, the problem <laughs> is the question that the priest and the Levite are asking in that Good Samaritan story, right? What's going to happen to me if I try to help? rather than what's gonna happen yeah. to him if I don't, right? Um, yeah, yeah. that's gotta be our that's gotta yeah. be our moral logic. So
1: yeah, that's so good. You know, that's one so of the uh resources that I've really appreciated that kind of gets at your question, Jared, um, there's a which I think we can all appreciate this uh, combination of people. Antonio Gonzalez Latin American Mennonite. <laughs> mm. um, and so he has a book called um What is it? God's reign and the end of empire, and it really is looking at um, the global, capitalistic, you know, multinational, multi-global like corporations and the pressure, and and he really helps push towards the end this vision of communities under on the underside, right, Mm -hmm. Um, that are really creating uh, counter communities. Um, in sharing in life and all, also resisting, but recognizing like these are powerful forces. They're right, not, right. And yeah. so there needs to be something embodied and practiced on the ground, right? And I Amen. think that um, it's a really powerful witness that invites us to resist, to challenge, but also to build yes. um, and collaboratively and communally um, to make sure that we create space that is actually liberating and life giving right. uh, for our own communities and for those that are the unmet need
2: right, right in us
1: and all around us. Right. Yeah. I think yeah, it needs that needs to be a part of our our life. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: I've yeah. just looked it up, Drew. Yeah. It's a great <laughs> it's,
1: it's one of those books that it was uh when I think about my anablactivism moving in direction mm-hmm. coming across his work was really powerful. Um, and I loved what he was doing in terms of kind of this Mennonite and a Baptist liberationist theology conversation from Latin America side of things, though. Right. Yeah, and right. I thought it was really powerful. Yeah. Very cool. Yep. Very cool. Well, this has been so good, Michael. Um, I know people, if they get the chance, whether I, I will say this as a little shout out to the book again, but um, because the book is of expensive, if it's too pricey <laughs> for you, ask your local library to uh get it and then, that's right. and then you can go read Michael Barum's chapter it's chapter 5 um you can he gets into more detail into some of the stuff he was talking about but um it's a really great resource thank you for uh, the rich conversation um we thank probably should that's... have had you on a long time ago um to get into texts and hermeneutics and such but i'm really grateful for you making some time to be with us today.
2: Oh, it's, it's my honor. Thank you. This has been tons of fun. And, and just to, just to tag on about the book, right? We do know that in about 18 months it should come out in a paperback so we're trying to we'd love to, to as as drew knows we would love to push the publisher to to do that a little sooner but uh, that should put it down more in the in the 35 40 dollar range yeah, you know for accessible. for a paperback so um you know such as such as the the uh publishing gig but yeah this has yeah. been great you all thank you for your work thank you for um the inspiration uh that you are to to me and to to so many of your of your uh your followers and your community um, I do think, you know, that, that this, that this Jesus cat that we're following actually is, (laughs) is all about the revolution that is even beyond what we've been able to 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 dream right and yeah. and i know drew you know ask
0: you or imagine yeah you, right.
2: you use the language of god's dream and i think that's yeah. what's so exciting to me is that is that god is dreaming so much bigger than we are um even what we can 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 imagine right uh, from the scriptures and and uh that that must mean that you know this is this is something even better than than the marxism i was enamored with early on so you know mm. good to, good to be with you both The Inverse podcast is proudly supported by you, the listener. And if you want to join the revolutionaries who are helping us have conversations about how this ancient text can still turn the world upside down, why don't you head over to patreon.com slash inverse.